The Bob Murphy Show, episode 116. Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. So this one is going to be, unless there's other major developments, the last episode where I'm going to focus on the health aspects of the coronavirus from going forward. I want to get back to my area of expertise, which is the economics of all the crazy stuff the Fed and the government are doing in response to it, or ostensibly in response to it. But I did think it was important for at least this one last one. This kind of just fell on my platter this guy, he's he's a doctor who's in New York City. His name is Levi Machado, and he's a uh, a doctor who's working in New York City area hospitals. He's also a libertarian, and he's mentioned off the air when I was interviewing him. He's a big fan of Contra Krugman. He loved the part where Tom sets me up and says, is there anything else you want? And then I said, actually, there is. And then Tom just cut the episode off. So great guy, and he's just going to explain the mechanics of the coronavirus and how this thing um, actually affects you, why health experts are very concerned about it. You know, we t- I ask him obvious stuff like, well, you know, is it is it like the flu? You know, things like that, just so you understand physiologically, how does this thing work? And then at the tail end, we hit two other issues. So one is going to be, of course, you know, how can you protect yourself from this thing, whether you're in a vulnerable category yourself or if you interact with people you know you live with or you frequently visit somebody that you know if they got this thing, they'd be in serious trouble. So you want to make sure you don't unwittingly contract it and give it to them. So he gives some tips on that as well. And then the last thing we mention is the media treatment of this. And I think it's important to focus on this aspect just to make sure your understanding of how this thing unfolded over time is correct. Because some of the takes I'm seeing right now from libertarians runs along the lines of, oh yeah, this thing was never a big deal. The media has been blowing this up from day one because they saw this as an opportunity to pounce on Trump and they smell blood in the water and they're exaggerating every little thing just like they do with... And no, that's actually not what happened with this, okay? So of course, at this point, when they're throwing out numbers that are humongous and then having to walk them back two weeks later, yes, I agree with the people criticizing that and, and that was irresponsible of them. They are trying to scare people. But if you think from day one that this was always exaggerated by the media, that's not what happened. And so I'll give just three examples at the end. Well, I'll I'll put them in the show notes page. So this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 116. One of them is going to be, it's a USA Today article from February 17th. And the title, the headline is, Top Disease Official, colon, Risk of Coronavirus in USA is, quote, minuscule, semicolon, skip mask and wash hands, right? And so this is an interview the USA Today was, was covering with Dr. Fauci, who, as of February 17th, was assuring Americans, don't worry about this thing. The risk to you, us here in the United States, is minuscule. Okay, so again, if if you think what's been going on is Fauci finally saw his opportunity and he's been trumpeting this thing, and bl- that's not what happened. In the beginning, he was telling people it's no big deal. And by the way, giving them horrible advice, telling them don't bother wearing a mask. 
another example is there's a Vox article from February 7th, and it starts out and saying, the corona, or this is the headline, the coronavirus exposes the history of racism and, quote, cleanliness. And the subtitle is, while the epidemic may be new, xenophobia has been intertwined with public health discourse for a very long time. Okay, and the article goes through showing how, oh, all these irresponsible commentators are trying to say this is, you know, something coming from China and they're adopting xenophobic measures like some some conferences are restricting travel from China, people from China and things like that. And and this is this is outrageous and they're quoting various public health officials at different levels who are poo-pooing the idea. So, oh, come on, the chance of you getting this is so minuscule right now. And, you know, you don't need to be afraid of a whole demographic of people. But, right, so that was the framing back then. Um, another example, I have an LA Times article the paywall thing's popping up, so I can't see these. Oh, let's see. No, this was from March 3rd. I can see it tell from the URL saying uh, how Feinstein decries unconscionable racism amid coronavirus outbreak. Okay, so these are just three examples just to remind everybody in the beginning, no, it is not the case that the media was trumpeting this and trying to scare Americans saying this thing is Armageddon. We need to lock everything down. No, they were saying in particular like Silicon Valley companies were being criticized who you know have a lot of uh, employees in conferences and such that involve travel to and from Asia, and they were being criticized for being racist for trying for stereotyping and so on. When in retrospect, what they were doing was exactly the kind of thing that now the Trump administration is being blamed for, you know, being asleep at the wheel by these same critics. Okay, so that's again, I'm just reminding you that that's the way this thing played out. So of course, yes, once people realized it was a big deal, they amplified it in order to try to uh, criticize Trump and make him look like a buffoon. But it is not at all the case that in the beginning, the media, the you know blue check marks on Twitter and whatever were telling everyone how terrible this was. On the contrary, they were saying, if you're worried about this, it's because you're a racist and you don't understand science. Okay. So again, just to make sure that, you know, as you file this thing away in your memory banks is how did this thing play out? That's what happened. So without further ado, let me just give you the background of uh, the qualifications of Levy. So he is a Brazilian physician. He got his medical degree in Brazil in 2012. And then he came to the United States and he did his uh, pathology residency at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan, from which he graduated in 2019. And currently um, he's focused on blood marrow lymph node pathology. He's a fellow at uh, Mount Fior, which is in the Bronx. Okay, so he's going to reiterate all of his background very quickly uh, when the interview starts. And then again, we'll proceed. It's, most of this is just going to be very factual stuff about how does the novel coronavirus um, attack the body and you know where the different treatments and the pros and cons and that kind of stuff. So without further ado, here is my interview with Levy. Oops, stop the presses. Folks, one more technical correction before we proceed to the interview, something we caught in the post-production phase here. Um, when I'm asking Levy, as you'll hear in the interview in a moment, uh, I ask him to describe whether the New York City hospital network got overwhelmed by this. And so he starts going through some numbers just to you know, give an idea of the, the demand versus the supply, that sort of thing. And he said that Mount Sinai Hospital has 10,000 beds. He meant to say 1,100. Okay. And so you'll, you'll hear in, in his argument when, he, when he's explaining the situation, it makes a lot more sense what his point is. If you substitute, he meant to say it has 1,100 beds, not 10,000. 
Okay, without further ado, here is my interview with Lavi Machado. Well, Lavi, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Bob. So why don't we start by just, can you briefly establish you know, your, your credentials? What, you know, why is it that we, we should be listening to your take on this? Um, so you know, wh- where did you go to school? You know, what's your degree and that sort of thing? Okay, so let me start from the beginning. I'm from Brazil. And that's where I did my medical school. So you can take that against me, if you will. <laughs> uh, I did six years of medical school in Brazil, and I graduated in 2012. After I graduated, I worked in various settings, mostly with emergency medicine. And I also worked for the military, um, mandatorily, I should add, for a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I came here, and currently, I well, I came to the U.S. in 2015, I did four years of anatomical and clinical pathology residency at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. And currently, I am training in hematopathology, which means I'm training in blood, bone marrow, lymph node pathology, subspecialty. We can talk more about that a little later, I guess, Um, in Montefiore Hospital, which is in the Bronx in New York City. So then again, I'm still in training. I'm fairly young. and I'm not anyone with heavy credentials in the field. What I have going for myself is I am an MD. I am in the middle of this pandemic crisis. And I'm also a curious mind with lots of time in his hands to research. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't want necessarily people to listen to me because I'm a doctor. I know there are plenty of MDs out there that will tell you all sorts of information. I want people to listen to me and make up their own minds uh, and look stuff for themselves. And maybe I can help them to look in the right places um, if that's mm-hmm. good enough. Sure, yeah. For them. And, and just Hopefully maybe for, it's good enough for me. So that's the, you know, the, the medical side. And then just also to sort of build rapport with you know, the, the listeners of this podcast. I mean, you are also you, part of how you and I connected is like, I think you were following me on Twitter and, you know, you're you're aware of the writings of, you know, philosophical libertarianism and things like that in the Rothbardian tradition. Correct. I, I, that's probably important to add because honestly, you won't find a lot of libertarians in medicine at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, which we don't have to get into it. But I can say that it's hard to mm-hmm. be in medicine and have views there are pro-freedom and anti-establishment and government control, it actually hurts your career in ways, uh, which I'm sure you yourself can relate to when it comes to being an economist. Right, right? sure. Uh, sure. <laughs> okay. And so, so I can imagine that it would be maybe easier for the audience or just regular people to connect mm-hmm. with someone that is likely-minded, but at the same time, see this issue for what it is, at least for in a different perspective and see this issue as a real issue that sure. has to be addressed. Sure. And has to be taken seriously. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. So why don't we start, I think perhaps the way you started the email you sent me is a good way to begin that just you personally, like when did, was this on your, on your radar? And also just a, a real basic question or issue, a matter of terminology. Can you explain what's the, people are using coronavirus, the coronavirus, novel coronavirus, and COVID-19. Can you just explain what do those terms actually mean? Is there a family of coronavirus? You know, just stuff like that so people understand the terminology. 
we can start we can start about we can start talking about basic virology and it is very important um again i'm not a virologist so my understanding is better than most people but not as deep as some others uh so this disease comes from a specific virus which this virus was named SARS-CoV-2 SARS-CoV-2 then you can see that there is SARS on the name. Mm -hmm. And it's important to notice that because it has a lot of similarities with the first SARS-CoV-1, which was the SARS epidemic that happened in 2003. Uh, All these viruses, SARS, MERS, and all of them are coronavirus. They have this name coronavirus because they actually are somewhat shaped like a crown. Uh, so that's where they get the name. Unfortunately, the Mexican beer <laughs> mm-hmm. is also named Corona. And of course, they're being hard hit on this. But uh, And this, these viruses, which there are plenty of coronaviruses out there, most of them are pretty harmless. They cause, a lot of them cause the common cold, not even influenza, just the common cold, mm-hmm. which everyone, you know, gets every year. And because, you know, they ride the subway and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Can, can I stop um, you? Levy? Is of it, course. is every common cold a coronavirus, but not every coronavirus is the common that cold? Is, that is, that is not no. accurate. Yes, you're correct. Uh-huh. So stop me and ask me all the basic right. questions because I may get myself lost in here. So uh, the common cold can be caused by a lot of viruses in multiple families. The most common one is one called the rhinovirus. The coronavirus causes about between 10 to 30% of them. Okay. And now this data is, not, is never confirmed because we never really study every single patient's common cold and type mm-hmm. it because it's unnecessary. But we know it's about 10 to 30% of common colds that are caused by coronaviruses. So, yeah, so this is a type of coronavirus that, mm-hmm. you know, mutated in, in mm-hmm. a specific region, and now it's spreading all over. So SARS-CoV-2 is the virus of the coronavirus family that causes yes. the disease COVID-19? The disease called COVID-19, okay. yes, correct. Okay, so can you then just spend a little time just explaining, you know, what what happens physiologically when somebody gets this thing, and, you know, why why are some people saying it's such a big deal? Right. Okay. So that's, uh, I'm going to be very detail oriented here, but stop me. And Mm -hmm. if you need some extra explanation on any term, I'll try to do my best. Doctors can get technical uh, and not even realize it. But here's what's different about this disease. When you get infected with SARS-CoV-2, it's important to understand that you have something called an incubation period. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? You have about every single disease out there, mostly viruses, they have periods, we call it windows. It's periods where you're infected, but you're not symptomatic. Uh, that varies widely. Uh, in SARS-CoV-2 specifically, it seems to be about a week. So five to seven days seems to be uh, most of the data that we have. Some data out of China mostly have shown cases of up to 14 and even 20 days of incubation time. That's probably where the quarantine for 14 days policy came about some Mm -hmm. time ago. Um, After this incubation period ends, then you start having symptoms, which for most people will be fairly benign. Uh, What is most people? (laughs) We can talk about epidemiological problems later. But we don't quite know how many people have very, very mild symptoms and how many people don't. Mm-hmm. But we're going to focus on the people that don't have the mild symptoms because here is where I think your listeners should get the most value out of. 
first, you will have fevers, you know, and then you'll have short of, shortness of breath and coughing. Interestingly, um, apparently 70% of the people, they've been developing loss of smell, mm-hmm. which is very unusual for respiratory viruses. So that could be one of the things to look for, really complete loss of smell. And you will have fevers for the people that develop a more aggressive disease. You have fevers, cough, and short of breath for up to two weeks. And mm-hmm. that I will call that the first phase of the disease. Okay? We're going to have different phases here uh, evolving with the patient that happens to have a more aggressive disease. So 12 days into this, uh, most people, fortunately, will be 100% fine. A subset of them will develop um, ARDS-like symptoms. So and ARDS that, is what? Yes. So I'm gonna get there. Okay. Uh, acute acute respiratory distress syndrome. Okay. Okay. So this is what ARDS stands for, and I'm gonna use the acronym sure. from now on because otherwise we're gonna be talking for a long time just talking about these acronyms. But a subset of people develop ARDS, and what does that mean? So this is what it means. Um, you're at that point in your disease, and that's why it hits so hard on people that are immunocompromised. Your immune system can get overwhelmed and you will have two things. You will have, I have to talk about anatomy now. Uh, The most functional part of the lung is called the alveolus, which let me call it. You have, it's a bunch, you have a lot of alveoli and they make up the lung, right? The alveolus is a little um, bag of air (laughs) <laughs> that is most almost always open mm-hmm. and uh, it has a fine layer of epithelium around it and a fine layer of basement membrane. And right next to the epithelial membrane, uh, the epithelial layer and the basement membrane, you have vessels. And the vessels that run in the alveolus are tiny. The capillary is very small. And that's where you actually do the exchange of gases from the outside to the inside. Um, with SARS-CoV-2, especially in the so, so can I stop lung, you? You're saying so that's in the lung. You know, you you breathe in the oxygen mm-hmm. has to get from the air that you just took in your lungs into your bloodstream. You're saying that's the membrane over which it travels. Which it travels, yes. Okay. And that's that's important to understand because it's important to understand that to, before understanding ARDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, with SARS-CoV-2, your epithelial layer, the first layer around the alveolus. One of the things that change is that layer gets damaged and it gets damaged very widely, uh, kind of everywhere in your lung. And in a very obscure way, that's why you hear about uh, um, you hear about computer tomography, let's call it CT, right? You hear about CT scans with ground glass opacities everywhere. That's what's happening. Uh, it's, it's an image way of seeing what I'm telling you about, which is the little alveolus getting damaged. Uh, so they get destroyed, and as they get destroyed, fluid from the vessels leak, okay? Mm-hmm. And these fluids that leak into the lung, they themselves, they stop that the optimal transitioning of gases, but at the same time, they are filled with, they have a lot of proteins on those fluids, and those proteins, they coalesce and, and they make 
a membrane, what you call a hyaline membrane in pathology, and we can actually see that under the microscope. And that membrane causes fibrosis inside the alveolus. And every single alveolus that has those membranes, don't, they don't work anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they, they have zero gas exchanges. And if that's happening throughout your lungs, like everywhere, then you're going to have very difficult, a, a huge difficulty to oxygenate in your blood. And that's one of the pathways of how people get sick and end up needing a ventilator, which we'll talk about that in a second. The second thing that can happen to you is the more like influenza-like pathway, which influenza does this too, which is give you a secondary pneumonia. Mm-hmm. So when you have a respiratory virus, a virus that goes all the way down to your lungs, that causes destruction uh, and causes inflammation, uh, those fluids and that inflamed material is a perfect, uh, a perfect little, um, how can I say it's perfectly, it's a perfect area for bacteria to grow in, right? Mm-hmm. So you, as regular people can have pneumonia for any reason, but if you have influenza, you're particularly susceptible. And then again, if you're immunocompromised even more, right? Mm-hmm. And that part, of course, happens a lot to old people. And that's because the bacteria start growing there and your immune system isn't able to knock it out or keep it in check? Well, yes, a part of that is this. But a second part that's more important than your immune system is just the fact that you have lots of fluids with lots of proteins, which is food for them. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, uh, uh, your, your anatomy, your regular physiology and anatomy, you have a lot of ways of stopping bacteria to spread to your lungs. But all of these are compromised if you have really bad uh, virus infections. All the layers of protection that you have of antibodies, quoting, the nice lined epithelium, all these things are lost. And you just have a bunch of, a lot of fluids with proteins, and that's just perfect. Mm-hmm. And ambiance for bacteria. Yeah. But what I was, what I meant though was because you said they're almost a throwaway line. That's why pneumonia hits people who are immunocompromised, like the elderly. Yes. And you're saying because, yes, of course, yeah, okay. It can hit it. It can hit anyone, but of course, if you're old and immunocompromised, right. it's likely to happen to that population. Right. Okay. Uh, now that is actually the best outcome you can hope for if you only have the pneumonia. Because we can treat pneumonia. Uh, if we go to a hospital, you get antibiotics. If we need to be intubated for a day or two, we can do that. And again, intubated means what? Right. <laughs> Good. Uh, so it's being put into mechanical ventilation uh, with a tube down your throat. Mm-hmm. And that machine, the ventilator, puts air in your lungs with what we call positive pressure. Um, which, you know, again, it, it will be important uh, when we understand later why the people that have ARDS, going back to ARDS, why those people um, are dying um, mm. and it's really hard to treat them. Then, okay, so you can have the ARDS, you can have the pneumonia. And a third thing that we're finding out just now, it's been published in the last week or so, is that a lot of these patients are developing coagulation problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is very important because we've, if you've seen the Italian data of people that are dying from this, they say all of them have underlying conditions, right? Mm-hmm. Most of them at least. And But some of those underlying conditions are actually very prevalent diseases 
So they consider hypertension, underlying condition, and they consider diabetes, an underlying condition. Those are fairly prevalent, especially in the U.S. They're very prevalent here. So um, all these conditions, like hypertension and diabetes and you know, heart disease and, and heart failure, which are mostly what we call cardiovascular diseases, they all have uh, one thing in common, which is they are already prone to endothelial damage. Again, endothelial is the one uh, layer that separate the first layer that separates your blood from the wall of the vessels, right? Mm. They're prone to have endothelial damage. And that is what makes you in a higher risk of having thrombi or emboli. And, and that pathophysiology is how people develop strokes. It's how people develop myocardial infarctions. And it's how people develop a lot of the kidney problems that they have and a few other things, just thrombosis in general. So it seems like, and then again, the pathway is not entirely understood, but a fair amount of these people, they're developing microembolisms going everywhere in your body. And that that causes even more impairment of the correct oxygenation of your blood. Because if you have microtrombi going on those capillaries that are going on the lung, which we talked about when we were discussing the lung, how a lung works, how the alveolus work, right? Then you have even less exchange of gases from the inside of the alveolar space, so the alveolar sac, as we call it, and your blood. Okay. Uh, not only, not mm-hmm. only the lung, but also a third to two thirds of our patients, and I know that with firsthand data, from our hospital, a third to two thirds of them are developing kidney injuries, uh, and they have to be put on dialysis, and that's probably because of those thrombus too. Again, some of this stuff is going to be permanent, but mm. so some of this stuff, morbidity is an issue here too, because even the people that don't die, they will, the people that have severe disease that don't die, they will have some amount of chronic problems here. How much of those are going to be, um, are going to really affect their lifestyle? Difficult to say, but for sure, some people have been losing, some people that have been having really bad ARDS and that data comes from China, who they have been having cases in good amounts since December, January. So they have a lot of data on recovered patients. Some people that have lost their lung capacity by 20 or 30% when they were sick, they haven't recovered it. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that if you're someone that likes to run, right? You like to run and you're used to running 5 to 10 miles um, twice a week. If you get hit with a really bad disease, and again, thank God is not most patients, but if you get hit with a really bad disease, you need to be hospitalized in an ICU, you stay there for a week or two, maybe, and you recover. That person may not be able to run anymore. Maybe they'll be able to just go up a few flights of stairs before getting tired. And that's not going to come back. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's more than just a mortality issue. We're talking about also quality of life. Um, and with some people that are having kidney injury, um, some of that kidney function that they have is not going to come back. So, long term, that's going to predispose them to have chronic kidney disease and having to be on dialysis machines. We just don't know what the long-term implications of all, the, all of this is. 
and it goes so beyond just you know mortality numbers mm -hmm. which we can discuss in a little bit too but okay so um we is, were is this a good time can i ask you lovey is, sure. is this a good time and, and maybe it's not but so i mean one of the things you you see because i'm just bringing it up now because you alluded to it is people will say hey let's let's keep some perspective on this you know the vast majority of, of the fatalities have been you know with comorbidity and there's you know other things going on here and mm -hmm. and hey for all we know it's it's not even correct to say the covid-19 killed them you know what i mean it's this other stuff and maybe they happen to have you know the SARS-CoV-2 at the time can you just and i'm not trying to put you on the spot but can you just at least like try to frame that of like course. what's the no, right no. way to think I, about I, that I, kind I, of thing I, we can discuss that um, mm -hmm. then, then maybe I'll go back to the history of the disease because it's important to finish that later. So remind me to finish okay. that. Uh, so yes, uh, one can make arguments and I don't disagree with those arguments at all that some people that have been counted as COVID-19 deaths probably would have died of, of some other very, um, nefarious comorbidity that they had. For, for example, I'm a hematopathologist. I give people leukemia diagnosis, right? If you come to my hospital today with leukemia, there is a high likelihood that you have leukemia plus COVID, right? Mm -hmm. And that actually is fact. I've been seeing that. Um, so some of those people could die of COVID. Now, it is entirely philosophical, really. Uh, you can make the argument either way whether you should count those as leukemia deaths or COVID deaths. Because in all fairness, a lot of people with leukemia recover, mm -hmm. right? Uh, some don't. And if you have those two processes going on, you can have really, if you have uh, heart failure in a very, very, um, if you're like, if you're, how can I say that in non-technical terms? If you have bad heart failure, let's put it that way. If you're in the bottom uh, 20 percentile of heart function, your life expectation may be six months mm -hmm. without a heart transplant. And if you get COVID, there's a high likelihood that you will die. Now, should they be counted as COVID or not? I don't have the answer. At the same time, um, we're only at least in the hospital, we're only really counting as COVID deaths someone who has a positive test or someone who has very typical radiological findings if they don't have a positive test. There is a backlog of testing. Uh, so I can give you, I have a lot of contacts in Brazil, for example, and mm -hmm. I'm still in touch with my medical school colleagues. And since I'm in New York, they've been actually reaching out more and more. Uh, because they've been having problems too with COVID there. And it's just, they seem to be a month behind us, but it's catching up. So I can tell you that, for example, in Brazil, right now, at this moment, there are 30,000 tests pending. And they're, pro they're from very high suspicion patients. And some of them are dying. Mm -hmm. um, they're dying as their tests are still pending. Not every single country out there has the same test capacity. Honestly, the U.S., Test capacity is pretty good now, but it was definitely lagging for a long time, uh, early March and February. So we're catching up. Um, there are still plenty of people not getting tested. Um, that's still going on. And there's plenty of people dying of unknown causes as well. Um, I have mentioned to you, that was even in the news, 
but I know firsthand that it's true news, let's put it that way, <laughs> that uh, the medical examiner's office, have, they have had an increase in about eightfold of people dying in their homes of unknown causes from year to year. So in March, where they used to have a number, let's ballpark here, 20 to 30 of unknown deaths a day uh, that people would be found in their homes, um, that number has spiked to close to 200. Mm -hmm. um, what are these people dying of? I can give you two hypotheses, and they're both relevant to COVID. They may be dying of various diseases, and that is another issue that we're encountering in New York City. Our hospitals, they're not treating the patients with other diseases as well as they were five months ago. Those people will not be counted as COVID deaths, um, but I can... I mean, we're seeing it that as of right now, 90% of our hospital here, 90% of our beds, they are COVID patients. But in a regular year, in a regular, in a non-pandemic time, uh, usually these hospital beds are not empty. Mm -hmm. um, hospital capacity in the U.S. is actually very good compared to most countries. But if it were, we can discuss a little bit politics, but if it weren't for some um, measures that government takes into, um, let's put it this way, regulating the whole system, it would be bigger. Uh, mm -hmm. We would have more capacity. The, the hospitals have a lot of say on another hospital, hospital opening. You've discussed that with other people before. Sure. Um, and But still, the U.S. has better hospital capacity than most countries. Yeah, actually, than all countries. And still, 90% of our population here, they're COVID patients. In a regular day, we would have lots of patients with cancers, cardiac problems, kidney problems, infections. Where are these patients? That's a good question. Uh, most of them are not here. Most of them are probably trying to treat at home. Uh, maybe we're not, as a society, let's use healthcare as a proxy of, as, as a society. We're not doing our best job at this moment of treating them. Uh, I can tell you firsthand, I've been giving a lot less leukemia diagnosis than I were just two months ago. And I don't think leukemia has decreased. Sure. Right. Correct? There is no reason to think that leukemia has decreased. We're just not, again, giving people the best healthcare out there. Now, so, now can, I, can I ask you just to, and, and maybe it's hard to yeah. say, but so there's, there's two ways of, of interpreting that. The people who are... Uh, very much saying this is a really big thing, and it's it's. I'm glad that the media has really been pushing this, and you know Trump was dragging us. They would say, right, see that the COVID has swamped the system and has crowded out the available resources, and other people can't get treated. Those who actually think no, you know, the panic is what's really at issue would might argue that oh, people are just afraid to go in, even though they they could have gone in and gotten treated for their leukemia or whatever. And if it weren't for CNN scaring the heck out of them, <laughs> you get That's, what I'm saying? So, are you, uh, and again, I don't mean to I, put you on the spot and maybe you no, don't no, know. No, 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 please, yeah. you can do that. Mm -hmm. I think that answer is regional based. Mm -hmm. So, if you live in a rural part, if you live in Mobile, Alabama, or if you live even in small, smaller cities like Cincinnati, Ohio, um, I think the argument is probably correct. They don't necessarily are being swamped with COVID patients. Um, I have seen, and then again, 
my information on that is as good as yours. Right. Uh, I don't have first knowledge on this, but I have seen um, anecdotal evidence that hospitals in North Carolina are very empty because they took the same measures as, as the New York hospitals of almost canceling every single elective procedure and being prepared for what I have to say is a horde of COVID patients at this point. Um, and maybe for them, that rings true. Um, the hospitals in smaller cities in other states, some of them are empty. Um, and that's not, that, that seems to be correct. Hospitals in New York City are overcapacity and they have been overcapacity for almost three or four weeks at this point. Okay. Um, what does that mean? Uh, that means that any regular month, our hospital, the Montefiore Hospital, has about 1,300 beds, correct? Mm -hmm. Now, today, uh, they have about 2,000 patients, um, and they just, you know, open new areas, um, turned regular infirmaries into ICUs. The operating rooms, they are ICUs now, uh, because operating rooms, they have everything that's needed to run just like an ICU. And again, I don't know if I have to say this, but ICU stands for intensive care unit. Uh, it's where usually you put the patients that are the sickest and need a nurse dedicated and potentially uh, they need mechanical ventilation and a respiratory th therapist and all that stuff. Uh, staffing is also an issue, but we'll get there soon. <laughs> so ORs, we're not operating anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, they're not having surgeons. That's what's happening. If we need a surgery right now in New York City, you're waiting. Um, so you can imagine that for some people that have breast cancer, you know, some people that have prostate cancer, some people that were just diagnosed with a lung nodule, um, these people are not being treated. So if you ask me, is the hospital system in New York specifically overwhelmed? I would have to go back to you and ask you, what do you mean by, what is your definition of overwhelmed, right? If your mm -hmm. definition of overwhelmed is, are we able to treat all the COVID patients without people dying on the streets? Uh, then we're not overwhelmed, right? We're still able to treat all COVID patients that are coming uh, without people dying on the streets. But if the question is also taking into account the patients that we're not treating, then I guess we are. Um, and again, localized issue, I don't think hospitals in North Carolina are overwhelmed at this point. It's possible that it will never be as bad anywhere else as it is here for a lot of reasons. We'll get mm. to that, I'm sure, at some point. But here we are. Um, we're overwhelmed. We're mm. bringing staff. So it is true. Uh, the government, and not only the government, the doctors themselves, which I think it's very selfless and remarkable of them. Doctors from everywhere in the U.S. have been coming mm -hmm. to New York uh, in in numbers, uh, it ha it's not just, you know, five or six that are there for good TV, uh, in numbers, really, and nurses, and um, they're staffing hospitals that were already here, they're staffing hospitals that were built, uh, you know, like, right, temporary hospitals. And if you're in New York right now, and you're sick, thankfully, we, as of today, and then again, today, I should say it's April the 14th. I have no idea when people will be listening to this. But as of today, everyone that needs 
a ventilator is getting a ventilator. Everyone that needs specific medication is getting that medication. Everyone that needs an ICU bed is getting an ICU bed, even if it's an improvised one. Um, so, it is, now that, is, is that partly because of the ramped up anticipation? Like, in other words, would that have been true, what you just said, had you had the existing infrastructure that you had on February 1st? That if we had the existing, so I can tell you some numbers. Okay. Uh, and, and this stuff is all easy to look up. Um, New York today, New York City, has over 10,000 COVID patients. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't, that means inside our hospitals today. I'm right. not talking about, let me rephrase that. They have 10,000 COVID patients that are admitted. Okay. Right. They have a lot more than that. People are just being treated at home for the most part. Um, 10,000 patients, it, if you're not in healthcare, maybe you don't really understand what that number means. But a big hospital like the Mount Sinai Hospital of New York City has on a regular February, 10,000 beds available. The Massachusetts General Hospital, the very famous hospital in Boston that everyone has heard about, they have exactly 999 beds. Uh, and the Montefiore Hospital where I work, which is the only major hospital that serves the Bronx area of New York, has on a regular February, 1,300 beds. So if you were to go back to February, and say, hey, here's 10,000 patients. We don't even have those beds. It's, right. it, would, it would have been an impossibility. Then, of course, I do have to give props to the hospital system for organizing and preparing. Uh, I think things could have been even better mm-hmm. in some ways. But they have, however, um, increased capacity and doing their best to give everyone at least the minimum amount of care they need. So, um, so, so yes, um, it, going back to your question, are the hospitals here overwhelmed? On my own personal definition, I would say as of right now, yes. But they're not overwhelmed to the point where we're letting people die and having to choose who gets what, which has happened in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, you know, staff is overwhelmed. We have patients and improvised rooms and we have increased capacity and all that stuff. So that's not untrue. Um, okay. And I know I see that every day. So so I don't know if this is the time, to, but to circle back maybe just to the basic physiology and so on. Okay. Me, so I, yeah. uh, I, if I recall, we stopped talking, uh, we stopped on that story when we were talking about the three different types of complications you can get. Right. Correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So at that point, you can get really sick. And then again, uh, how many people guess, get to that point? It's a guess. Um, data from South Korea suggests 2 to 5%, uh, maybe even less, who knows. But it's a, it seems to be at least 2% of people that really need intensive care um, response. Um, and then also, that depends a lot on the health of your population and what kind of population we're talking about. But let's let's say 2% and being on the optimistic side. Um, that population that develops those complications, they can get really seriously sick really quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of those people, and then again, going back to dying at home, uh, some of those people, they can get sick so quickly that 
they may not even have time to seek help, especially if they don't have anyone helping them. If they're by themselves and they got sick and they decided, hey, I'm going to stay at home and see what happens. And they may be, when there are plenty of anecdotal stories about young people who got really sick and drove their cars to the hospital and passed out in front of the emergency room. <laughs> you can see that everywhere in the US, but I'm sure this has been happening to a substantial amount of people. Um, if you get to that point, it's likely that you're going to need ICU care or at least hospitalization, potentially with mechanical ventilation. Um, this is kind of a double-edged sword. And we kind of touch base, you and I, but it's important that I try to explain it. Um, I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible, but mechan- uh, being on a ventilator is not, should not be heavy enough ventilators for the, your entire population that gets sick. Should not necessarily be the main goal because if you get to that point of really being on a ventilator, your prognosis is really bad. And mm-hmm. what do I mean by that? As of right now, about 70% of everyone we have intubated, and intubated again means putting a tube in your throat and putting a mechanical ventilator next to you that's doing all the breathing for you. 70% of those people have not recovered. Mm-hmm. Some of them have passed, most of them. And some of them just stay in the ICU for weeks and weeks. Some of them have been there for a month right? at this point. <laughs> And um, the longer you stay on the ventilator, the more that ventilator that's helping you breathe actually damages your lung. How does it damage your lung is a complicated uh, story that involves a lot of physics. But I can give you a little bit of uh, the simpler version of it. Um, I like the analogy that I've heard before. Uh, you can tell if one person really understands the topic, if he can explain it to a five-year-old child. Mm-hmm. So we're going to see if I really understand the mechanical ventilation topic here. Uh, and I'll the, be the five-year-old, yeah. <laughs> you'll be the five-year-old child. So a ventilator controls some variables on how it gives you the air with oxygen. One variable is pressure. The other variable is volume. Another variable is level of oxygen, okay? Level of, this is counterintuitive, but the higher the level of oxygen that we give you, the more it damages your lungs, okay? Mm -hmm. Why does that happen? Because oxygen, as the name says it, it's an oxidizing agent. It creates, it oxidizes, it creates, it Think that it creates rust, right? It oxidizes Mm -hmm. things. And one of the things that it does, it creates iodized particles that will actually harm your cells. So oxygen itself can be bad if given in really high doses. Unfortunately, a lot of these patients do need high doses of oxygen just to keep them alive. The second thing is pressure. Now, if you're thinking about a regular person breathing normally, we don't have positive pressure in our lungs ever. How do we breathe? When we do, and you can try to do it yourself to kind of understand how it goes, but when you do the breathing, what you're doing is you're expanding your thorax and you're lowering your diaphragm, right? Your thorax, you're expanding your thorax with your own muscles and you lower your diaphragm. And what that does is create a vacuum. You see it? Mm -hmm. Okay. When you create a vacuum, the air just goes in because it needs to fill that vacuum right right? 
In this case, you're taking a machine that's pumping air with pressure in your lungs and pressure itself damages your lungs. So the third equation is volume. The third variable, I should say, is volume. Uh, volume is somewhat related to pressure and somewhat related to oxygenation. So here is here's usually where it gets more complicated. If you give the patient more volume, you're going to improve the patient's oxygenation. And that is logical, right? But at the same time, if you give the patient more volume, it will increase the patient's pressure, correct? You can mm -hmm. see how that goes, right? Because you have only a limited amount of space that this air can go to. And if you try to give more volume that, you know, where it can go and your lung is all fibrotic and damaged and filled with fluids, then the pressure just rises. And the more pressure you give these patients, the more you damage the lung again. So, and the other thing, you can't even necessarily control the pressure so well if you have uh, if you have a goal of keeping the patient oxygenated and you already tried your best with increasing the oxygen saturation in the gas you're giving the patient, plus you have to give them a certain amount of volume, the pressure tends to be the variable that you least can control. Mm -hmm. And and then it's it's a fine tune of the mechanical ventilation. One time, just being um, honest, I was actually following Tom Woods, mm -hmm. <laughs> your friend. And he put a picture, a very interesting picture of an MIT-built uh, mechanical ventilator using one of those regular little bags that you see uh, mm -hmm. doctors using all the time and saying, huh, this is an emergency ventilator and it could cost you 300 bucks, right? Much better than the $30,000 stuff that they're using in ICUs. And I have mentioned to him, hey, um, and, and again, it's it goes a little bit deeper because I happen to have some training on this, but with that type of machine, I probably can't control volume very well. I probably, and even if I can control volume, I definitely cannot control pressure. You see what I'm saying? So if you were to use improvised machines like that, you would make a problem that's already bad worse, right? Because mechanical, if you put those patients in mechanical ventilators, their oxygen, the, the oxygen that you're giving them it's keeping them alive, but it's harming their lungs. The pressure that's allowing that air to go in is keeping them alive, but it's mm -hmm. harming their lungs. Mm -hmm. And another thing that happens is they're not breathing anymore by themselves. And by the act of breathing requires muscles, muscles that are in your um, ribs and your diaphragm that I mentioned. If you stop breathing, your muscles atrophied. Because it's a rule of medicine, right? right? Or a rule of physiology. You don't use a muscle that atrophies. That That's for a leg or an arm or your ribs. It's the same process. And the more that those muscles atrophy, the least that patient can actually breathe for himself. Now, if you have a patient that will stay on that ventilator for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, what we will try to do as physicians is... We will have actually not even the physician, the physician is not even the hero here, is the respiratory therapist, which you probably have heard about, right? Uh, that person will try to do their best to stimulate you every day, um, changing settings on the ventilator, trying to see if you can breathe on your own a little bit. So every day they will come and they will 
try to give you exercise, breathing exercises mm-hmm. to, to make sure that you don't completely um, lose your function of breathing on your own. Um, and again, there are plenty of steps that you probably, we, we can take, there are plenty of things we can do therapeutically before it gets to that point. So the ventilator should not be the goal. The goal should be doing your best to reducing people needing a ventilator. And I think that is not necessarily very much in evidence is how you make people boost their immunity, how you make sure that the people that have um, moderate disease don't progress so severely. Um, We've been just telling people stay at home and if you get real sick, go to a hospital. But at that point, maybe you will need a ventilator in hours. And we lost the window there, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So... Yeah, so, I mean, the, the part about mechanical ventilation is kind of important and it's difficult to understand. It, it has a lot of physics behind it. And it's, it's, important to, it's important to really visualize that these people that are in ventilators, most of them, they are alive, but they are almost in a death sentence. Mm-hmm. They are alive right now. They have been diagnosed two weeks ago three weeks ago, a month ago, and currently their heart is beating, but their lungs are destroyed. And we're not quite sure if we're going to be able to improve upon our 70 to 80% almost mortality ratio, I should say at this point, of people that really end up going on mechanical ventilation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, I mean, of course, there are the 20 and 30% of patients that do great and we treat mm-hmm. them really well and um, they get out of that mechanical ventilation in a couple of days and those are the th- this is why we keep trying sure uh, of course and there are even stories of nine-year-olds that you know people have almost gave up on and they did recover which is always a good story right uh, but it's not the majority of people for sure okay. so can i i think I mean, this might be the right time to ask then again just trying to help people relate what you're saying to some of the other commentary so one of the the things that, you know, people have been batting around is, is this just like the flu? So obviously it's not literally the same thing, but can you just, you know, address that issue? Of course. So the influenza virus, and there's a lot to talk about influenza virus, why even most of the statistics that you've been hearing about influenza virus, they're not true. Um, Influenza virus kills very little people, (laughs) little amounts of people. The most uh, the most people that actually die from influenza, they die on the same way of coronavirus when I was mentioning the secondary pneumonia, mm-hmm. right? That is one of the ways that you can get real sick. That is what killed, that, that's what killed influenza patients. Uh, influenza per se, unlike coronavirus, influenza per se doesn't kill almost anybody. It really uh, only causes your lungs to be susceptible to secondary pneumonia. And then the influenza slash pneumonia kills you. Mm-hmm. Um, not only that, all these deaths that they claim to be influenza, um, I want to say uh, I've seen numbers ranging from 30 to 70,000, right? In the US or so, depending on the year and all that. All those deaths, they're not tested. So anyone, it's, it's an estimation. And it's mm-hmm. an estimation that's not, based upon the influenza virus per se, it's based upon how many patients have been admitted to hospitals with respiratory viral illnesses and eventually died. 
correct? Mm-hmm. We're not necessarily tested. Some people are tested for influenza, but not all of them. So, and because again, there is no reason and there is no hard, it, it's a waste of resources to try to come up with precisely what virus it is when you're not in the pandemic, right? When you're not with COVID-19 problem. But which virus it is, it's a waste of resources because all of them behave similarly and all of them, the treatment is similar and it's mostly support and uh, good respiratory therapy and making sure that they don't develop pneumonia and if they do treat the pneumonia. So if it's influenza or parainfluenza or any other of the 50 viruses out there, um, we don't ever test that. So the premise itself is wrong. You see, mm-hmm. so uh, I'm going to attack a lot of the premises. The premise, oh, the flu kills 30,000 people, therefore is worse. It's wrong in every single part of that sentence because it doesn't even kill the 30,000 people. And, and again, even if it did, we're talking about it kills 30,000 people throughout a whole year, right? Mm-hmm. This has been with us for, I mean, one could say for a couple of months, maybe but in significant numbers, maybe a month, right? This has been with us with, well, for a month, and we will have, when it's all said and done, a lot more deaths than even... I mean, it's hard for me to say that, maybe not, but it seems like we'll have at least more deaths than what they claim that influenza kills in a whole year, right? And again, it's important to stretch the ear part, because if you spread those cases out, of course, there's a flu season, Right. And it tends to be worse from November to March, April. Uh, But it's a lot more spread out than this. We we never, as physicians, you never go to work and you have out of your thousand bed hospital, 800 people with influenza. This just not even close. Maybe you're going to have 20. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and uh, most of them influenza plus, right? It's influenza plus leukemia plus whatever, which some people with COVID, that's the case. But a lot of people with COVID are allegedly perfectly healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so a decent amount of them are fairly young, um, um, younger than 50. I, I would say the data from our hospital is about a quarter of them are younger than either 50 or 40. So maybe 50, mm-hmm. a quarter of them, which... You know, significant, uh, because if you want to claim that it only really kills people that are eight years old or older, um, that's not what we've been seeing here. Again, if you're young, of course, your likelihood of having a more benign disease, it's much, much, much higher. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're complete. You can't draw the short straw and be one of those that for any of these reasons, maybe you have a coagulation problem and you don't even know. Uh, Those are way more common than people think. Mm -hmm. Um, Can I ask another thing, and and maybe this is like a a trivial detail, but to me, one of the big things in terms of like trying to get a handle on, whoa, how concerned should we be about this new thing versus the flu, which is always with us, is just what you mentioned, that sort of incubation period. Am I right Right. thinking that the flu, you're... You're gonna know you're sick a lot quicker, and your people are gonna see you're sick. Keep their distance. You're gonna try <laughs> to not, and you're gonna be home in bed, not right. walking around. So going to going back a little bit about how this virus is different, um, the difference is not necessarily incubation period because the flu also has an incubation period. Uh, I'm not quite sure the days on the flu. It's probably somewhat similar. The difference here is that 
coronavirus has asymptomatic spreading, right? So um, I could be sick right now and not know, or I could have gotten infected three days ago. It's possible. And I am in that incubation period, right? I'm not sick yet. Then again, there is evidence showing that people that are not sick yet can transmit it. So it goes back to this is a lot more contagious than the flu. It's not even in the same magnitude. When you talk about contagiousness, you're talking about uh, you, th- there is a, a certain function called the R naught, right? And everyone mm-hmm. has been heard, hearing about that then R naught in the news and you know doctors talking on TV and all that stuff. But it's important to understand that R naught is it's quasi logarithmic. You know what I mean, right? So it influences R naught, and then again, R naught is also not necessarily only um, a function of the virus. And that's also important to understand. It's a function of the virus in your population with certain behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. So I should probably it, clarify for people who are just hearing this. So R not, it's time, like is R and then a little zero subscript. It's a, correct. It's an yeah. R and a zero. And the, the zero uh, is like they call it, not. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Right. It's, they call it not. It could be called R zero. Uh, but that, so again, so um, it's a logarithmic function and I'm going to explain why. Um, influenza's average of our knots, because of course, if you have influenza's are not in New York City where everyone is crowded in the subway every day, is different than influenza's are not in Orlando where everyone drives to work, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not a function of the virus. Again, it's, it's, it only means, what does it mean? It means how many people on average, one person who's sick, how many people will that person contaminate, correct? Influenza is on average about 1.3, 1.4, right? And if you extrapolate that, you, you have 10 cycles of contamination, right? You have 1.3, and then this person contaminates one in a third of a person, right? <laughs> you have to make statistic, statistical sense of that. Uh, it gets to the point where maybe 10 cycles later, you have between 16 and 20 people that are sick. Coronaviruses are not as not known. And then again, I think that's one of the reasons why New York was so hardly hit. And it's one of the reasons why maybe other places won't be. Uh, Coronaviruses are not in places that have gotten really bad disease. It's estimated to be at least three or four. Now, imagine that same scenario that I said, 10 cycles, right? One person contaminates, let's even use three. Let's mm-hmm. be on the optimistic side here. One person spreads to three. Those three people spread it to nine. Those nine people to 27. Ten cycles later, you're talking about how many? Tens of thousands? I don't even know. So you see, on the contagious side of it, it's, we're not even talking about the same ballpark of mm-hmm. disease. It's a whole different issue. Uh, which is also another reason why the hospitals, uh, that's why you hear the flatten the curve and all that stuff. It's the, the hospitals were, are concerned about all these patients coming in at the same time. Because if you were to guarantee me that everyone in New York would get sick throughout the year, we could probably handle it. And we would handle it. We'll find mm-hmm. ways, we'll increase capacity, and it, it wouldn't be great, but we'll survive. 
and everyone would be treated well. But now you talk about most of these patients coming on the same two weeks, right? right? There is nowhere on, on the planet that is able to handle that amount of sick patients at the same time. Uh, so, so let me just make sure people don't get lost in the in the details there. So, we don't know what the exact number with the flu. We have better numbers. Yes, we generally do. speaking, you get the flu, you'll probably infect one point three other people, right? Yeah. Total. Then they, of course, go ahead and do it, and so on. Whereas yeah. with this, again, we don't know, and it's partly a function of you know where is it? Like in maybe in an Asian culture where everyone's wearing masks, it'll be lower, but. Correct. In New York yes. City, it looks like it's a lot more than 1.3, at least in the beginning. And so right. that's why this thing quickly spread yeah. and then and again, why yeah, so, I, so many I, people were alarmed by it in the beginning. Right. So I want to emphasize the point of emphasis here is, of course, I'm here to talk to you. And a lot of what I'm trying to convey is we don't know enough, right? Mm-hmm. But the point of emphasis here is that these things, including mortality, and are not and all when you hear about this on the news it seems like it's a function of the virus and it's mm-hmm. not it's a function of the virus in your population and that part in your population has not been given enough emphasis not even to policymakers right so if i am the governor of nebraska with extremely low populational density where everyone lives in a big home. I mean, I guess everyone, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of people live in homes separated from each other and drive to work every day. I can tell people, hey, we have this thing going on, we should be careful. But do I have to lock everyone in their homes? That may be an overkill. Mm -hmm. And I actually, my opinion is that as a free society, which (laughs) I can only hope that we were, uh, we would be able to come up with these decisions for ourselves, uh, depending on where you live and how things are going in your own corner of this country. But I, the the fact that we're doing we're doing the same for a small city in Florida with better weather and much less populational density, which is probably where Tom Woods lives, and a place like New York City makes absolutely no sense, mm-hmm. no sense at all. It doesn't. I do think restaurants in New York right now, even if we were 100% as a free society, would have, we would have come up with the evidence that maybe we shouldn't be going to restaurants here mm-hmm. at this point, right? But maybe in a place where they don't have as many cases, maybe the restaurant can spread out the tables. Maybe the restaurant can put hand sanitizer at the door and maybe they can take extra precautions and still have customers, right? Mm-hmm. Again, when you're talking about policymaking being done on such a centralized level, and I should say that actually the federal government hasn't, as of yet, done a lot of the draconian measures, right? They haven't, they haven't been the one that decided everyone stay at home. Uh, it's been mostly the states. But again, a state making decisions based on what's happening in New York, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's not mm-hmm. the best Can way I, of going about it. Okay. Great, great. Yeah. and I, I'm glad you're, you're mentioning that too. Um, can I mention or ask you so, part of this issue of like, oh, wow, how bad is New York getting hit? And I, I don't mean to be grim about it, but just like one of the things that was really terrifying people that they were, they didn't know where to put the bodies, things like that. Like, is that, again, are you allowed to, to talk about that or? Uh, again, um, 
let's I'm gonna give you somewhat of an answer without being specific. Okay. Um there have been talks about creative solutions towards okay. what to do with bodies. Um the morgues have been full. Okay. Uh the coroner's office. And then again, I'm not saying that on a regular day the morgues have a lot of vacant space. Right. They're kind of already designed to be about capacity, making sure that our population is serviced um, with that service. But they they have been uh, overrun a bit. Um, mm. And of course, I mean, it's just understandable if you yourself had an interesting data point on Twitter that you saw that New York City overall deaths for the month of March going to April was a lot higher than a regular March going to April, right? On other years. Yeah, specifically. So again, I, it was in a New York Times piece and whatever, but yeah, they right. ostensibly were using CDC data. I'm just summarizing for the listener. And they yeah. were saying, I think it was the 30-day period ending April 4th of 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the total deaths from all causes, and, the, and so I like this because it would kind of tease out whether some things were just being classified as COVID-19 when really it was something else. But they were saying the total deaths in New York City from all causes was roughly double what the typical rate was. And they, they show the chart going all the way back to like 2000. And the only time you saw something that was a similar spike was on September 11th, you know, when the terrorist attacks happened. And even this was was bigger than that. So, yeah. so that to me, assuming those data were legitimate, that kind of shows, okay, this isn't merely some statistical artifact that people are dying from regular stuff. And because this is politicized now and people hate Trump, everything's being labeled as one thing, but really, you know, it's, it's kind of just business as usual. Yeah. So um, about that, I want to add something that I find it, that I'm always um, trying to argue with people and it doesn't seem to really sink in. So now that I have this opportunity, um, the mortality rate, <laughs> again, that that's a big, that's a huge can of worms, right? The mortality rate, has a lot of problems. We don't know what the mortality rate is. And then mm-hmm. again, I don't even think that, again, the virus doesn't have a mortality rate. The right. virus does not have a mortality rate. The virus kills a set amount of people depending on how healthy your population is, right? So the population, depending on the characteristic of said population, maybe if lots of old people are in Florida, Florida is going to have a higher mortality rate than Texas, Right. That has nothing to do with coronavirus being different in Florida, correct? So the mortality rate depends on how healthy your people are. And not only that, but as I've explained before, we give you a COVID diagnosis on day 10, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. day 10 of disease, and you may die on day 30, correct? Some people, of course, some people, actually there is data on this. Uh, After hospitalization, if I'm not mistaken, the average length to death can be up to 12 days, right? Um, And the explanation curve that we're living right now, you have to compare the deaths today from diagnosis made and unmade. So of course, there's a lot of diagnosis unmade here, right? Made and unmade from 12 days ago. Mm -hmm. You understand that? And And 12 days ago, we didn't even have a million cases in the world. Again, I think we had a lot more than that, but we didn't have a million confirmed cases. Confirmed cases, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, we. I honestly, I, I honestly think at this point it's five to ten times at least, um, especially in New York. But 
the, again, it's all ballparking. No one really knows. But you have to compare it with the cases from some time ago because there are a lot of people today in the hospital that if I were to wave a magic wand and say COVID or not from now on is zero, it doesn't spread anymore. We will still have deaths from this mm-hmm. for at least, honestly, a couple of weeks. And they might not right. be as high as 700 a day. Maybe it will go down to 500 and 400 and 300, which mm-hmm. 700 a day is what we've been having 750 or so on average in the past week in New York City, um, actually New York State. Mm-hmm. Um, it may not be that high, but you're going to have still 300 deaths and then it would be 200 for a week or two every day and then 100 and then, you know, mm-hmm. then it would decrease at some point. But then the point here is your denominator and then the fatality rate is number of deaths divided by number of cases, right? You cannot use the denominator as we know today and the number of deaths as we know today for all wrong that is on this data to already be, like this data is entirely wrong from right. start to finish. Sure. But even even considering that the data is right, which is not, you still couldn't do that because there are a lot of confirmed cases that will still die. We just don't know who they are yet, and they're not in right. the numbers yet. Right. Correct. Yeah. So so honestly, talking about fatality rate at this point, um, the best data that we have on fatality rate, I would point to one country, and I would point to one very specific. Um, case study that we have, which honestly was a complete blunder of how to how to proceed uh, on a pandemic scenario, but it actually gave us good data, which is the Diamond Princess cruise ship. I'm mm-hmm. sure you've heard of it. Yep. So, uh, of course, you can't take a cruise ship population and imagine that is the estimate of your overall population, because of course, we know that cruise ship, cruise ship people tend to be a little older, and they may not be as healthy or all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But from the data from the Diamond Princess, they all got they all got the best care possible, right? They were in Japan, great healthcare system. Uh, they were all it, as they were getting more severe, they were all transferred to hospitals, and they were giving they were given let's say top notch healthcare. The mortality in that ship, and they tested everybody, right? They tested everybody, and so we know who's asymptomatic. We know who got some disease and we know who died from it. The data from that ship is about 1.6% mortality, which I don't think is what you will see in the Mm. world because, again, cruise ships. But interestingly, if you go deep on that data, up until today, you will see that there are 10 people. I'm actually not sure if that decreased in the past few days, but the last time that I saw a few days ago, it was 10. There were still 10 people on this serious critical tab. Right. How long ago was that, right? So you're talking about 10 people who got sick in late February? Uh, That was such a long time ago, maybe even before that, early February, I don't recall correctly. And these people are probably still in ventilators somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. And and then with that data, apparently about half of them were asymptomatic. Uh, South Korea has even better data. So again, I said a country in in a place, in a specific scenario. South Korea has great data. So out of all the countries in the world, most of them have some kind of issue. Uh, Like I've been hearing people talking about, hey, Vietnam doesn't have as many deaths. And then if you look into their statistics, it seems like viral pneumonia has increased a lot in the last few months compared to what it used to be. But they just put it as viral pneumonia. 
mm-hmm. are some of those COVID probably. We don't know. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's happening there. Um, Malaysia is kind of the same idea. But South Korea is so perfect for a number of reasons. One is a proxy of a really good healthcare system, which at this point, for all everything that's wrong with healthcare with the healthcare industry in the US, the healthcare system is pretty good at treating people. It's a proxy of a very good healthcare system. And they did such nationwide testing with in such an amazing contact tracing there that they probably caught a, a good chunk of everyone who was ever infected uh, at that point. 100% of them, probably not. But they probably caught a good amount because this is what they were doing. If they diagnosed me with COVID, they would go back to where, where I was in, my, in the last week or two. And they said, you were in this restaurant that time. Let's find out everyone who was in that restaurant at the same time. You were in that place that time. Let's find out test everybody. And that's why they have so many negative tests in that country because they were right. testing for everyone that mm-hmm. ever got in, in touch with someone who was sick. And we lost the opportunity of being like South Korea. I had this discussion again, back when I was telling people a month ago, we're going to be Italy in a few weeks. There's no mm-hmm. way around it. We're going to be Italy, uh, maybe with a better hospital system, but we're going to be just like them. And they say, oh, how do you know? Maybe we're going to be like South Korea. But we're not doing anything that South Korea did, right? right we right. didn't do aggressive testing, we didn't do contact tracing. We kind of just played it out as, it's just the flu, don't wear a mask and wash your hands. It, it, just uh, to stop you, that, that phrase, yeah. contact tracing, means you, you, you trace the contacts of people that you know are the confirmed cases. You go back and say, who were they in contact with? And then you go and test them. And then you them. test them. Yes. Right. Okay. And, and, and that way you kind of throw everyone on quarantine, even if they're asymptomatic or they're in mm-hmm. the incubation period. Of course, testing has its own set of issues. No test is perfect, um, including the PCR for COVID or SARS-CoV-2 and the serological testing that they're coming up with, which we can talk about in a second or two. But even considering that the test is as good as it gets, uh, you you put these people on quarantine. And then that's at the end of the day, that's why they had such a spike on cases so rapidly. But it stopped because actually they embraced the opportunity of not only flattening the curve, as they say, but actually stopping the spread completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't we don't. That's not a possibility for right. us. We, we missed the window on that. Yeah. No, that's not a possibility. So uh, again, my problem with a lot of the policy tends to be they seem to be misguided. They don't seem to have an objective. Mm-hmm. What is your objective, right? If your objective is to flatten the curve and let people actually get it, let it kind of go through, let your population develop herd immunity, which is a tough conversation to have, right? Because some people will die. There's nothing we can do about it. Right, we we are getting better at treating this because we're getting more information every day, and as I said, we just found out about the microtrombi and the coagulation pathway. So now the patients are being treated with that anticoagulants, and every day we learn something new. And I'm sure we can even decrease that mortality. That maybe who knows, 0.5 or 0.4. Who knows what the mortality is? But maybe we can decrease it a few points more by treating the patients better. Um, but I was going back, but you have to have the objective. Are you letting it go slowly for your population and making sure that the hospitals are not overwhelmed? If that's your objection, if that's your objective, 
why is Florida closed right now, right? Mm-hmm. Why, why is Ohio closed? They don't have overwhelmed hospitals, right? Why is, um, I mean, even Texas has a little more cases, but not nearly as much as us. So yes, maybe we should be somewhat in lockdown because our hospitals are capacity and overcapacity. But if your objective is to let it kind of go through, maybe you educate people on how to protect themselves because they deserve that, Mm -hmm. right? You deserve to know how to protect yourself the best of your ability, but you don't have to lock everyone else in their homes. Um, It will leave your population even more susceptible later because it's my personal opinion, but I don't think we're going to be done with this anytime soon. Folks, let's take a break from my discussion with Levy to talk about how you can support The Bob Murphy Show. Uh, I'm going to be trying to do a lot more episodes on the financial elements of all this. You know, what happens with the crazy stuff the Fed is doing as of right now. The Fed has already increased the monetary base or what's the same thing, uh, the Fed's uh, balance sheet more rapidly than they did at any point during the 2008 financial crisis, even those first few months at the end of 2008, the Fed has already surpassed that. So if you want to hear more episodes on that sort of thing, I encourage you to go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Can I ask you, so you, and I'm, I really appreciate all this stuff. I just want to make sure I don't lose any of these threads. So right. before you were talking about how there's this like this built-in lag, and, and that was something that took me a while to understand to realize the ramifications of this. So I think some Americans kind of had this idea that, oh, wow, this thing's growing exponentially. And of course, something could be growing exponentially really slowly, but you know what we mean when we say that. <laughs> right. And um, and so it's, and I think they had the idea that, oh, okay, well, we're going to have lockdown for two or three weeks, nip this thing in the bud and boom, stop it dead in its tracks. Whereas it it's, you know, looking at, so even if we did manage to stop the spread of it, you wouldn't see the impact on the hospital system and then certainly the fatalities until three, until a few four, weeks later. four weeks later. So I guess yeah. what I'm asking is, and again, folks, we're talking here on April 13th. I'm not sure when you're going to be actually hearing this interview. Do you, do you think right now, at least in New York City, you guys have turned the corner in terms of new cases and that's coming down or are you just too soon to say? Uh, I would be optimistic and say it seems like it. Uh, mm-hmm. So New York, started uh, their uh, heavily socially distancing about three weeks ago, maybe four mm-hmm. weeks ago at this point. Um, and I think all businesses are pretty much closed in March 16th or 17th or something like that. And so people were demanded to stay at home. So you can see it's about four weeks ago. If you think about the timeline of the disease that we discussed a little later, of course, if I throw everyone in their homes and they're not getting out for anything, um, or just to buy groceries as quickly as they can <laughs> and run to their homes and stay locked in there. If I do that, the R naught of the virus is going to decrease because, again, the R naught of the virus is not specific to the virus; it's specific to the virus on a specific population that does specific things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like our hospitalization rate is reflecting that. What do I mean by that? Every day we're getting patients. We're still getting new patients every day, but much less than we were two weeks ago. And that trend has really started to shift Monday last week. So about a week ago, right? Today mm-hmm. we were the 13th, that was the 6th. That's when we really saw, huh, maybe, we, maybe we're maybe we getting there. 
Uh, our number of patients inside the hospital has been constant as of the last week, which means the amount of people that are coming in are about equal to the amount of people that are either either getting better or dying. Mm-hmm. So it's not increasing. So people are like, oh, at least it's not increasing. Now, am I to tell you that if we reopen everything from zero to 100% today, am I to tell you that this is going to not spike again? I don't know that. And honestly, logic dictates that we're not 100%. I mean, this is obviously still out there. And if you let everyone go out, you're again increasing the R0 overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and by doing that, it's not going to reflect from the hospital data next week, but it'll reflect from the hospital data a month from now. You okay. see? So there's always this lag of like incubation period, mild disease, severe disease, and complications, and including deaths. So mm-hmm. you have to kind of, it, it's not a numbers game, right? So it's right. not just a numbers game, it's, it's more nuanced. And you have to imagine if you're a policymaker, honestly, I'm not. <laughs> envious of their position. They're in a really difficult position in, in New York, especially. But if you're a policymaker, you have to at least think about these things. Okay, so, so and, and again, I know that's why I wanted to stress in the beginning that you're philosophically a libertarian and very sympathetic. So it's, you know, we, not what you would do, but just in terms of the medicine and the medical issue, like forget rights and all that stuff. Right. But you... Is it a, a true statement to say you think, suppose they kept the lockdown and, or or in a free society, if everyone just voluntarily stayed at home as much as possible, that probably New York City has turned the corner and you're past like the crisis. Like, oh my, we're bracing. This could be really bad. We might get totally swamped. And it looks like it's we're, we're through that major it seems part like of the, the storm. The mm-hmm. major uh, part of the storm where we have people dying on the streets because we don't have any more room for them. That as of right now, is not a reality. Okay. So it seems like we dodged that, yes. Okay, great. Uh, as of right now. Um, uh, about free society and what would a libertarian society do, it's so hard to speculate on that because what we have as a healthcare system is so far away from <laughs> what sure, a free sure. society would look like. So we have all kinds of demand problems, all kinds of supply problems, all kinds of... Uh, it's like all kinds of bureaucratic problems. And uh, honestly, in a true libertarian world, it might never even have gotten to this. Uh, the amount of information that would have been out there would have been much more transparent. I truly believe that that would have made a word of difference. Mm-hmm. Um, information, good information has been difficult to come by. And when I heard your own podcast, when you had... When you were saying, oh, when I, I was paying attention to this because I have a family member and I have to make sure that I would, we would be protected. When we were talking about the CDC guidelines of not wearing masks and, and how you believe that you could just go and talk to the cashier. And, you know, I don't know mm-hmm. if you recall that. Oh, yeah. Um, no, I'm still upset about that. Yeah. Of course you are. Yeah. And, and, and you deserve to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the truth is they were saying those things because they didn't prepare, they didn't have enough masks and they wanted to go to the healthcare workers, which yes, they should prioritize giving those masks to healthcare workers, but mm-hmm. not to the expense of telling people the truth. Right. You know, uh, we need to prioritize these resources. Hey, you know what? We made a mistake. You know what? We didn't prepare. This has been around for three months, but hey, huh, we didn't do it. Okay. We need to prioritize this equipment to go to healthcare workers, 
but you guys should better know that this spreads through the air. And right. it does, right? Mm-hmm. So I personally, personally, I have been wearing my N95 mask in the subway since February. Mm-hmm. So mid-February, I was that odd person of a mask. On the right, subway. right. Right? And then... People and everyone's would, probably like, what does that guy have? Yeah, yeah. Well, or why person. is he so paranoid? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, I should probably mention that it's not necessarily for fear of me getting sick, but very much like you, uh, there is a significant other that I have to protect who's going through a specific mm-hmm. time that I really hope she doesn't get right. sick. You didn't want to unwittingly uh, catch it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, and everyone is looking at me funny. And uh, the, fa- the, the thing that I wanted to tell people is like, oh, let's just wait three weeks. You know, right. you guys are going to mm-hmm. get it in three weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but again, um, personally, right now, I'm not even riding the subway anymore. I just, you know, I got a car and I drive. Mm-hmm. Um, which so, th- so this is probably a good time then to transition to, you know, so what for the, the people at home, again, especially those who either themselves are in the you know very vulnerable category or they live with someone or they visit their elderly parents or something and they, you know, what what practical steps would you or, or advice would you give in terms of, you know, what, what can you do to try to minimize the risk? Okay. So uh, medicine, I'm going to start with a little bit of a philosophical answer and then sure. I'll get to the real answer. Medicine is really good. Like a good, good. libertarian. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right, right. Medicine is really good at understanding and treating disease, but it's really bad at teaching people how to be healthy. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm sure you can kind of relate to that. You mm-hmm. go to your doctor for a checkup. He's going to tell you, Bob, your cholesterol is a little high. I have this drug for you, right? Mm-hmm. That's what they right. do, right? And this drug is not going to do much to your overall health. It's just going to literally decrease your lab. And I believe that that maybe will decrease your chances of having an MI down the line. So you're not going to, you don't see emphasis because again, mortality rate is a function of the virus in your population and the hospital system, right? So Forget about the hospital system. Well, let's focus on the population. If you're obese, your chances of having complication of this are much increased. Much. It's not even, we're talking about at least fivefold. Mm-hmm. So most of the young patients that we have in New York, unfortunately, are obese um, or at least overweight. Mm-hmm. So can you lose weight? tomorrow <laughs> to make up for no you won't be able to right but i am a big believer and then again i'm not i don't necessarily have that problem but i am a big believer in intermittent fasting uh mm-hmm. it has been shown that it boosts immunity there is a great paper by the new england journal of medicine so people look it up for yourselves uh type intermittent fasting in the new england journal of medicine and i'm sure you can pull up the article sure, it has i'll been, post it yep it has um it has been shown to both help people lose weight, but better, better immunity, better labs, all that stuff, you know, better health, heart risk. And that is important because heart related, cardiovascular related issues are the main culprit. If you have them, you should be extra careful. If you have some amount of hypertension, if you have diabetes, you are specifically, you are very much at risk not just pulmonary issues. So I don't think that there's enough of uh, that in the media. Well, right. I think everybody got right away, oh, somebody who's got severe asthma, because this thing attacks right. your lungs, they realize that's the issue. Right. But I think like some, like I know, for example, like stroke victims are also, and I don't know if it's because of the, the medicine they take or something like that. Uh, so Actually, I don't know enough about stroke victims, so I'm okay. not going to comment on that. 
Okay, um, fair enough. Uh, but so, yes, uh, people with cardiovascular right. So for those for issues, sure. mm-hmm. uh, what I personally do is um, I'm taking higher doses of vitamin D. Mm-hmm. And again, one of the reasons why we have such a bad flu season, and it happens to be on those years that we don't um, years what I'm talking about on those months that we don't have a lot of sun, right? Right. right. Uh, one of the reasons has been shown to be low vitamin D. Uh, and again, that's kind of counterproductive when the government's telling everyone to shut themselves in their homes and not get any sun, right? Mm-hmm. But let's not even get there. So I'm personally taking vitamin D and specifically vitamin D3. Vitamin D, even though it's called a vitamin, is more like a hormone. Mm-hmm. It acts like a hormone. It's not just good for your bone health. It's also good for overall immunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm taking vitamin C at high doses. Vitamin C is great because it's an antioxidant. What does that mean? It prevents, you, you remember what I was telling you about, about the oxygen damage in your lungs because it's an oxidative agent. Mm-hmm. So not only that, but also uh, it seems that the disease itself attacks the red blood cells and releases a bunch of red blood cell content in your blood. And I mean, not to get very technical, but some of those have iron and they create oxidation too. So taking antioxidants seem to be a good idea and vitamin C is a great one at that. So right now I'm only taking a regular dose of vitamin C, but if I were to get sick, I would up that five times mm-hmm. easily. Um, fortunately, I haven't really felt sick um, and at any point in the past few weeks. And I'm taking also a prophylactic dose of zinc. Now, mm-hmm. zinc, be very careful with that because zinc is poisonous mm-hmm. if taken at a high dose. And the right dose should be below 40 milligrams. So usually if you just take a polyvitamin, it'll have some amount of zinc in there, but I'm taking a little separate. So zinc is part of the treatment. Uh, zinc is shown to kill this thing uh, intracellularly. And one of the reasons why chloroquine is believed to work, even though the evidence there is a little mixed, in spite of what Trump says, <laughs> chloroquine is one of the things that chloroquine is believed to maybe have some action is because it creates channels to zinc uh, mm-hmm. on some cells and the, the zinc comes in and then it kills the virus. And so, so I'm taking zinc too. Uh, and of course, getting sun is great. Uh, I know people can get out of their homes, but hey, if you have a big backyard, just go get some sun. That's what I told my brother to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And he lives in Brazil still, so he's just going to you know the balcony and getting sun. But, um, getting sun is good. Uh, exercising is great. And just the, you know, the overall well, wellness. If I know people stuck in their homes are eating a lot of junk food mm-hmm. because, you know, it's just, you know, you hear people say on Twitter, oh, I just had my, you know, full whatever pound cake today. Uh, sugar is inflammatory on its own rights. And this disease is very inflammatory. So staying away from very carb-heavy sugar things, I mean, I'm not going to say that this is going to save your life or make a difference between having nothing and going to a ventilator, but it could help a little bit. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to do that too. Like pay attention to what you're eating and right, right. making sure that you get your vitamins. And again, you're not going to get any of that from medicine because medicine per se, the medical people, because medical people are really good at treating diseases and understanding diseases, but they're not good at trying to teach people to be healthy. That sure. is the unfortunate reality of the whole field. So, yeah. Okay. Well, we've been going here for the, the planned 90 minutes. Um, I think we should probably wrap up at this point. Is there any, any final thoughts you want to give? I, I know you and I, I would love to keep talking to you. And I know there's more information, but it, 
there's a trade-off the longer we go, then people stop listening. So yeah. <laughs> I think we've hit the main things people want to know. Is there is there anything you want to say uh, in conclusion? Or So here's what I want to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the final thought, and I think it's the most important one specifically for the audience that may listen to this on your podcast. Um, there is a way of being both aware and, let's say, unhappy with what governments are doing, and mm-hmm. at the same time, acknowledging that a problem may be serious, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily saying that it's as serious as the zombie apocalypse of The Walking Dead, right? Mm-hmm. To right. put it that way, <laughs> leaving it a little humorous, but serious nonetheless. If we're talking about half a percent of your population potentially dying, and potentially more if your hospital system can't handle it, mm-hmm. um, it could be less too, who knows, but potentially... There's a potential for that. If you're talking about half a percent, it doesn't seem like a lot. But when you think about the United States of America, imagine that 60% of people will get this at some point. You're talking about you're talking about a million people, right? Mm-hmm. Something close to that. And I don't actually think it's going to get to that. Again, please don't misunderstand me. But it is important to see that the amount of people that get this and get severely sick and will not just die, but have some amount of morbidity to their future, right? Maybe some problems of lung capacity and kidney issues and whatnot, is significant. The amount of people that actually die and get long-term problems with flu is insignificant. And by, what I mean by insignificant is even, even those numbers that are inaccurate, that they just is just estimations based on people that eventually get pneumonia and die of pneumonia and not the flu. Uh, even those numbers, we were talking about a 0.01% or even less, really, if you take into account any of those things that we discussed before. Um, and that's not the case for this. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. not. If it were the case for this, we wouldn't have overwhelmed hospitals. Uh, and in spite of the data not being trustworthy. Uh, and then again, when I say not trustworthy, I don't necessarily mean it's actually much less than what they're saying. I'm saying there's a lot of errors in, mm. in all directions. There's a lot of errors in this data. Uh, but even this untrustworthy data is enough to show us that this is not the flu. It's, mm. it's worse. It doesn't mean that we have to put everyone in prison and take away their rights and print money like there's no tomorrow. Right, right. But, but it does mean that we have a problem. And mm. the way to address it is not necessarily being a rebel, going around licking groceries because you're Superman, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which you've seen, right? right, right yeah, I know <laughs> what you mean, yeah. Or, or coughing at produce just because you right. can, right? right. Uh, you've seen, it's not like, not comply with, you know, wearing a mask. I'm wearing a mask, you know? Uh, I know it's annoying when you see police officers beating someone who got into a bus without a mask. That's annoying. And that is, um, that is a reach. That, that is something that shouldn't happen. But at the same time, maybe wearing a mask makes sense, right? In right. spite of the aggression that sure. happens when you don't. Uh, so, you know, so there is a time to be a rebel. And also, like you and we in our family, too, we were being rebels when they were telling us not to wear masks. 
Right. We were doing it that. So, I mean, it's <laughs> on, the, on the mask issue per se, you can say I'm rebelling against the initial right. uh, advidance that the CDC gave. So. Uh, and then my point was the media, the media coverage on this is they spent two months underplaying this and they were mm. really underplaying. So that's the interesting part about the libertarian movement in, in, in ways they're saying, oh, this is overblown. This is overblown. And they're right. It is overblown mm-hmm. in ways. But. It was underblown <laughs> for two months. And then at some point it switched, right? It's like, yeah, nothing's I, happening. I, nothing mm. is happening. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And then everyone has to wear a mask and be locked down because we're all going to die. Right. And it's neither there nor here. It's somewhere can, in the yeah, middle. I can remember, um, uh, Levy, to, to bolster your point there. And I saw this. There was some guy who ran like a tech company in Silicon Valley and he pointed out, like, I want to say maybe early March. I could be a little off. But it was when all of a sudden people were taking this seriously. And he and he was linking to, and when, like, the progressive leftists were criticizing Trump for, you know, dragging his feet on this issue and people are going to die because of his incompetence and, you know, stubborn. And so this guy who ran the tech company was pointing out, well, wait a minute, you know, here's a piece. And I, I don't even, it was, like, from from Vox or it was something like that. It might not have been Vox. Like I'm gonna see if I can dig it up folks in the show notes page, but, it, but it was, they were cr- progressive leftist blue check mark types were criticizing Silicon Valley companies who were early on because they had a lot of Asian, you know, employees and stuff. So they were more in tune to this thing and they were doing things like canceling conferences and whatever, and maybe like restricting travel and, and they were being called racist. Like this was back in February. Of course. You know, another, and they were <laughs> quoting like public health officials from the state of so-and-so saying, I mean, the chance of you catching this thing is so minuscule. You're, you're probably going to die from a bee sting. And st-, you know what I mean? So they were trying to say it was anti-Chinese racism back then too. So I, again, with this, you're, you're right that now, of course, once it turned into, oh, this is a way to attack Trump, let's jump on the bandwagon. You know, and I can understand, but it wasn't that the media was blowing this out of proportion in the, in the beginning. It was the opposite. They were calling people racist for being concerned about this. Of course they were. And at the end of the day, um, I'm much more disappointed. And again, when we're talking about governmental agencies, disappointment is a constant, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I'm much more disappointed with the CDC. I'm much more disappointed with the people that actually kind of are supposed to understand this and they're medical doctors or epidemiologists or whatever. I'm much more disappointed with them than I am with politicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, what politicians are doing based on the advice they're receiving, it's a power grab, but it's expected of them. Now, what the institutions have been doing and modeling and, and saying, those, I have no words. Those are... Yeah. Um, you know, that from the not wear a mask when there was Chinese data, the entire thing, not calling it a pandemic until early March mm-hmm. and uh, not accepting testing that had proved methodology from other countries. And oh, right. That, that's another thing that, yeah, we didn't get into. And I think probably we shouldn't just because it's more tech. But but yeah, yeah, I know that in your email to me, that was something, too, that testing yeah. that's, you know, not fly by night companies inventing some testo kit, you know, overnight, like stuff that was proven. And yet for bureaucratic reasons, they couldn't roll it out here. Yeah. Yeah. The, everyone in the U S has to be homemade, which, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to testing and all that, the methodology has to be here. And, uh, so, and every single hospital has to approve their own sets of testing, which also is problematic when you need speed more than mm-hmm. precision, because right. when in a pandemic, sometimes you need speed more than precision. 
to really act like South Korea did. In in our case, we just we just lost that window, and yeah. we knew we were going to lose it. So. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, folks. My guest has been Levi uh, Machado. Um, thank you so much for your time, and I'm sure everyone benefited from this uh, interview. And uh, best of luck to you, and hope hope things continue to improve out there. Yeah. Stay safe, everybody, and you too, Bob. Thank you. You've just experienced another episode of the Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com. <laughs>